Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I get to sit down and chat to someone that I met for the first time last week at the EAM conference, but I had heard of her previously from a lot of her work done in the wild. Uh, she's set up her own charity, Ocean Generation. She's also made a movie. Like, what hasn't this woman done? It is Joe Ruxton. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you very much, Hazel. I'm, I feel very privileged to be part of it. I'm so excited to pick your brain because you have so much knowledge about all things marine wildlife. I'm so excited to talk to you. I don't even know where to start. Um, so for anyone who isn't familiar with you or your work, could you give yourself a little mini introduction? Hmm. So my name's Joe Ruxton. Um, I have kind of a dual career. I started off in conservation when I worked for WWF in uh, Hong Kong, set up their first marine programs, then did a complete career change to move back to the UK and I joined the BBC. Um, started off my first five years there working on the original Blue Planet series, but continued to be involved with a lot of underwater wildlife documentaries. Um, I left the BBC in 2008 because I felt that they were telling the wrong story about the ocean. Everything that was produced looked like the ocean was full of life and pristine and that the coasts were beautifully clean and that wasn't what we were seeing on location. And although I tried to get a conservation message into every film I worked on, um, it was always taken out at the last edit. I was told people aren't interested in conservation. And that really maddened me. So I left um, and started to work on my own production, which was a plastic ocean and uh, set up the charity at the same time um, because I wanted the film to have a legacy. The more I learned about the issue that wasn't just about being, you know, an eyesore, there was so much more to it than that. Um, and I wanted the message of the film to continue through outreach and education work. Yeah, honestly, I think it's incredible what you've managed to achieve with all of it. So where did your passion for, well, probably wildlife, but in particular, marine conservation, where did that passion come from? I think I was born with it. Um, I always wanted to do something in the animal field uh, when I was little, but I was particularly drawn to anything underwater. And when I was seven, we moved to Singapore and after Singapore, it was Malta and Cyprus. And um, actually, in, in my lifetime, in my 39 addresses, um, there were five countries and six islands, not counting the little one that I live on now. Wow. Um, I think this proximity to the ocean and swimming and snorkeling and then eventually diving when I was older, um, just continued to open up more and more windows into the incredible wildlife that is in our ocean. Uh it's amazing that you were able to live in so many different places at such a young age. You must have seen such a change in diversity, you know, underwater, depending on where you were in the world. I think I've seen uh, 
different diversity in all forms of the word and uh, and and I feel that it was a, a, a privileged upbringing my father was in the Royal Air Force so it meant we never stayed anywhere for long um, and then uh, when I was married I, I did marry another um, Air Force brat <laughs> and uh, you, you kind of the traveling is is in your blood and we moved to Hong Kong and raised our family there and Hong Kong is a real crossroads um for people traveling um around asia but the other incredible thing about hong kong is how few people realized what is going on under the surface of the mm. ocean there i mean hong kong has um resident populations of pink dolphins of finless porpoises it has more species of coral than the whole of the caribbean Wow. Um, and yet the development that was going on, the, the ocean was completely being ignored. And, and one of the first uh, roles that I had um, when I was working in the marine side of things was to um, set up marine protected areas. And that took about four years, but it actually wasn't that hard to do because when nothing's protected, you think people don't care. But once you talk to the, the people in government and, and, and the, the stakeholders, it's this... I didn't realize, you know, and once you do, you can't ignore it, you know, you want mm -hmm. to help. And the pink dolphin that nobody seemed to know existed, including the biology teachers, um, eventually became the, the symbol of the, the handover from, um, the, 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 from uh, Britain to China. So a lot of the um, souvenirs have little pink dolphins on them and people couldn't have cared more. And that's one thing that I found in the work that I do, you know, you think people don't care. People just don't know. They want to care. And that was the big thing about the BBC. You know, the, the whole idea of putting plastic into Blue Planet 2, that, that team was coming together when I still worked at the BBC. And uh, I said, well, are you going to do anything on plastic? And no. And um, it wasn't until the film, their um, environmental film was in the final stages uh, when Sir David Attenborough went to watch it and said, why haven't you got plastic in here? And uh, he was in our film and he, he made the, t the team watch a plastic ocean. Amazing. And so the BBC then put that piece in about plastic and look at the phenomenal effect that had. It was a massive catalyst. And uh, yeah, it just showed that people want to care, but they have to know what they're caring about. Yeah. Do you think that it's quite easy for people, you know, not necessarily to ignore what's going on in the ocean, but it's so far removed from what we see in our daily lives, you know, yeah, we'll see sometimes, you know, garbage at the side of the road, you know, we're very familiar with recycling, and we can see landfills, etc, from where we live, but, you know, under the surface of the ocean, we really need those documentaries and those images brought to us so that we can see what's going on. No, I, I completely agree. But I also think that it comes down to education from the very, very early years, you know, one, one of my granddaughters recently we were sitting in a rock pool that had beautiful kelp in it and you could see little bubbles on the kelp and i said i said look bella the um look at that lovely seaweed there it's it's making oxygen for us and she looks at me and she goes but nana the trees give us oxygen and i said well yes they do but not as much as the ocean i said more than half of our oxygen comes from the sea and so we're still teaching our children that oxygen comes from trees when it's only about 20 percent um, that comes from the trees. I'm not saying they don't, they do, they certainly help, but the ocean is our main provider. And uh, if, you, if we grew up knowing that the ocean is our life support system, I think we'd be less likely to do it any, any harm when we're in those positions of responsibility and making decisions about how we're going to 
operate. Yeah, definitely. And was it that passion of yours to educate people and, you know, bring this information to the forefront of people's minds that made you want to start working at the BBC? No, not really, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, I was leaving Hong Kong. Um, my passion was diving. I was a diving instructor and always diving at weekends and things. And the more programs that I saw, the more I wanted to see the world. And the more mm. I went diving around the region, the more I wanted to travel. And when I heard that the BBC were making this new series, which was all about the ocean, I thought, well, I'll, I'll apply and just see what happens. Um, and I actually saw it at the time, the fact that I was going from conservation to this, I was thinking, well, at least people are going to see what's at stake, you know, see how beautiful the ocean is, but it mm -hmm. kind of went too far the other way. So for me, I had an amazing experience, you know, I did get to see the most phenomenal sights and travel to places that I would never have been able to go to otherwise. And, you know, learning on the hoof the whole time, it's a learning journey um, when you're when you're doing that, but it, it just started to really great the longer I was there particularly when I've made a point of saying, you know, I'm making a film about sharks, we need to say something about shark finning. And the fact that the decimation of shark populations has, you know, made their populations drop by 90%, you know, we have to tell people what's happening. And it was this constant no, and it wasn't just the BBC, actually, I remember going to Wild Screen, which is like the, um, the Green Film Festival. And at those you can pitch ideas to channel heads. And one of them, before we even started the the meeting, they were all on the stage and she said, I just want to say, don't even come to me with any ideas about conservation, because I can tell you now I'm not even going to read them. Oh, wow. And that was back in 2008. And when you look at that, if you think, I mean, that is so irresponsible for a start. Mm -hmm. um, but it just shows how low the interest was in that. Um, the other side of it now, however, is that with a plastic ocean, I mean, I, I had I had no idea how well it would do, um, uh, you know, in so many countries and, and the interest, because I kind of thought it might be a documentary on something like BBC Two, which goes to a more informed audience that want to watch things like yeah. that. You're almost preaching to the choir. Um, but the fact that it was accepted just by, you know, this massive audience. Um, and then when BBC did their um, Blue Planet 2 and had the environmental um, episode which had plastic in it, you know, it was all being called the Blue Planet effect. <laughs> um, but people, you know, you, you realize people want to know, but that kind of swung it the other way. It, it was almost too many hard hitting negative um, uh, uh, documentaries that are coming out of this. And people are starting to get serious eco anxiety. And whilst I can understand that because there is a lot happening, we're at such a special but very critical time at the moment. We're the generation that can turn these things around. We've got all the information we need now. We know what we're doing wrong. We know what we need to do to make it right. We know that we can restore habitats. We know that we can start to get the ocean healthy again. Um, you know, there's no excuse anymore. But don't keep telling people there's no hope. Because when you think there's no hope, that's when you stop caring or yeah. just bury your head in the sand. Yeah, I think, you know, it was such a massive undertaking of yours to to make the film, just to get it made. Like, how did you even go about starting it, like putting it into 
but you you know a lot of people could be like yeah I want to make a film and then it's like okay well actually how do you make this happen yeah well I mean it yeah it took eight years and and you know I, I wasn't a team of one believe me I had a lot of people out there helping me and some amazing people that um uh, helped to fund it um but you know it, it's it's what I've done at the BBC I worked with with other filmmakers in different roles um and uh you know, a lot of the time I was out fundraising, certainly as we went along, and, and that was probably the hardest bit because you've got the ideas, you know what you, what you want to do, and then you haven't got the money to do it. And mm. sometimes the money was sort of almost promised, but not quite. And the trouble is when you're filming, particularly underwater, you've got to book boats in advance. You've got to book the people in advance um, because everyone was, was freelancing. And um, it's very difficult when you've only got a week's notice and suddenly it's all hands on deck, hire the kit, is the kit available, you know, out you go. I said after the um, Plastic Ocean experience, which was which was probably the hardest thing I've, I've ever done, I said, uh, I'm never going to make another film. And then I started to think of this new idea and then it's, oh, I'm never going to make another film unless the funding's there up front. Um, and then I get a phone call from the amazing presenter who will be in the next film when I've got the funding. Um, he said, I've got something to tell you. And I thought in my head, you're going to tell me you're pregnant, aren't you? And uh, she said, I'm pregnant. And one of the sequences that I want in the new film is about our natural connection with the ocean. Yeah. And um, I know how dolphins um, are fascinated by pregnant humans. So mm -hmm. here was my opportunity to see if that was going to happen. So I just managed to get enough funding together to have four mornings in a boat down in um, Mozambique mm -hmm. and uh, I'm delighted to say that it worked worked better <laughs> than any other dolphin filming I've ever done and um, so we've got one sequence in the can but we don't have the funding together yet to do the rest of it but I'll get it I just wish that uh, I wish we hadn't had COVID and I wish other global yeah. events hadn't kicked off because I think it would have been much easier to be raising funds, having had that to be able to show people this is what we're doing. Um, but also because the other film was successful, I'm kind of coming from a position now where the credibility has been proven. Um, yeah. But, but I'll get there. You know, it's, it's uh, just another one of those challenges. I mean, it's quite the hook. Like, I'm pretty sure anyone listening to this will be like, well, I don't know what the rest of that film's going to be about, but I'm going to watch it not just for anyone. that sequence. <laughs> what were some of the yeah, it's quite emotional. Of standout moments for you when you were filming A Plastic Ocean? Because, you know, it's a very hard-hitting film. There's a lot of very striking images in it for a reason but was there mm. anything for you you know with everything that you've seen across the world that really stood out when you were filming i'd say two things um the first was when i went to the center of the north pacific so the whole film originally was going to be about this so-called great pacific garbage patch mm -hmm. and everything i'd read about it all the information that you find online if you look it up it's all about this massive floating island. They used to say twice the size of Texas. They now say three times the size of Texas. Or if you're in Europe, they say three times the size of Spain and Portugal. Um, and it was strange because I couldn't see any images of it other than ones that were obviously taken in river mouths. You know, one person in a tiny canoe type boat wading through plastic. Well, that's not the center of the ocean. Um, so I, I just started to 
question it. And then when I actually went out there, it was the fact that the center of the North Pacific looks as blue as you imagine the, you know, the beautiful Pacific Ocean. Um, but it was the fact that the plankton nets were coming back absolutely choked full with microplastics. And that was a big awakening for me um, to mm. see that the reality of this and to also realize how badly the media can damage information because if you look at that people will think oh well there isn't a great pacific garbage patch therefore we can carry on putting our plastic in the mm. ocean because look it just dissolves um when it was far worse but the other thing i learned on that journey was the connection of the chemicals and how plastic um not only leaches them but it attracts them so it attracts chemicals that are in the ocean things like ddt that was banned in the 70s is still out there and you put plastic brand new plastic in it just sticks to it like a magnet mm. and also the fact that it leaches chemicals out from its own manufacture so things like the endocrine disrupting chemicals and the thing is once they're eaten they might pass through and you might think well i don't eat the stomach of a fish but the one thing that these chemicals like better than plastic is actually fat so the bigger fish the chemicals are actually released and stored in their fatty tissues and that's the the bit that people like to eat you know or mm -hmm. crisp up at the edge you know just under the skin and so on so um that that to me made the whole film more important it wasn't just showing this terrible eyesore and showing animals getting entangled and ingesting it this is something that was affecting the health of the ocean and the health of any top predators and of course that is that includes a lot of um, humans who rely on fish for protein um, because they don't have access to alternatives. Yeah, I think that's so well explained as well. You know, for anyone who doesn't really understand the role that microplastics right now play in the oceans and in the food chain, that was mm. so well explained. <laughs> like that was so eloquent. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, you mentioned eco-anxiety and I think you're completely right. Like it does affect everyone now. We're seeing it a lot of people saying, well, what difference can I make, you know, in the grand scheme of things? And you had a really nice quote uh, in your keynote at the conference last week that stuck with me, which was everyone, we need more people doing things imperfectly. Yes. I, I mean, millions of people doing one thing imperfectly is far better than a handful of people who are doing everything that I certainly don't do. You know, I mean, I'm not a vegan. Um, I do have a car, it's a hybrid, but I drive it when I need to. I've, I flew over to Valencia, I flew down to um, Antarctica. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't do everything perfectly, um, but I, I, I do what I can. And the point is if a million people did one little thing to change their lives or in, in, encouraged others to, that's the way we're going to see big change. And I think people need to understand that if they're contributing by doing one little thing, that is so much better than actually adding to the problem. You yeah. know, you have a choice, do something or be part of the problem. What do you want to do? And, and that's it. It's, it's word of mouth as well that, that changes people and changes behavior. And that's where the young people come in because they are so determined and there's nothing worse as an adult than being embarrassed by a child who clearly knows more about something than you do. You know, it makes you want to sit up and listen. And I think they're the best ocean ambassadors we have, which is another reason that we have such a, you know, an emphasis on young people and education in our work. I think also, you know, if you look at the the recent cost of living crisis, I think a lot of 
changes that you can make can benefit both the environment and also your wallet. Mm. Um, you know, as women, yes. there are two there are two very big areas in which we contribute towards potentially landfill, you know, period products and also nappies for babies and children. Mm. Um, and that's not to say mm. like, oh, you can't use tampons or sanitary pads or, oh, you can't use a disposable nappy. Of course you can. Um, but there's a lot of women, myself included, who have switched to period pants, you know, which you can you can mm. wash them and you can reuse them. Exactly. Or moon cups, diva yeah. cups. Yeah. And I have a lot of friends who do have children who do have reusable nappies that they use whenever they're in the house mm. and at night, but they still yes. have disposable nappies mm. for those emergencies or if they're out and about. And that's totally fine. It feeds yes. into that imperfectness of, you know, if you can at least do yes. a little, it evokes a lot of change. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That That is the thing with, with the nappies. I mean, my my first baby was born in England and it was all about um, cloth nappies, you know, mm. and, uh, you know, having a nappy bucket on the go all the time. And then when we moved to Hong Kong, I think it was not Pampers. There, there were, yeah, there, whatever. There were new nappies that were coming out that just seemed to make life easier. And um, I think I had, when I went there, I had a cold water twin tub washing machine. And certainly the idea of having nappies that I could just stick on, was uh, was a lot easier, but mm -hmm. with my daughters um, and 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 their children, that's when these really easy Velcro design yes. nappies came. I mean, they're just brilliant and they're really pretty as well. Yeah, they've you know, made nice it so much fun, easier. Fun ones, they really have. I mean, you don't even have to have safety pins anymore, which was another thing that I used to hate doing. Um, so it, it is easy to make change, and as you said, you know, use them when you're away or when you're out shopping and it's a real faff bringing back, you know, soggy nappies, but when you're just at home, just, just do the right thing. And that's only one example, but, but the other thing about, um, cost of living, it, it's made us look at what we eat. Um, and also, yeah, the, the whole idea of, of eating seasonally and eating locally, um, also stops the, um, the reliance on on plastic and so on and i know it's not available to people that live in big cities but you know farm shops actually in london there's an awful lot of um grocers that sell um vegetables that you can just pick up and put in your own bag you know there's if you look around and start to get to know them and i know you know you had a hard day's work and you're stopping in a a corner supermarket an express supermarket shall we say um and just grabbing things then you know I've done that too. I'm not trying to be holier than thou, but when you can make a difference, make it, you know, again, it's your choice. Do I want to be part of the problem or do I want to help the solution? Yeah. And that's what we do. Just, it's not a case of, well, I can't do everything therefore I'm not going to do anything. Um, yeah. You know, just, just think about it. So your charity ocean generation is involved in so much education and outreach and is really trying very hard to make sure that people of all ages are very aware of these issues. Can you mm. tell our listeners some of the projects that you guys are involved in at the moment? Yes, so um, the idea of Ocean Generation is basically wh whoever you are on the planet now, you're part of this generation. You know, we are the ones that can turn things around. We're the ones with the information we now have. And you can look at it as an exciting time to make change. We don't need to cause problems anymore. But with 41% of the people on the planet being under 25, we are targeting younger people more. 
and we have three areas that we focus on and the first one is the three to 11 year olds and we work with um, earth cubs and this is um, a, a game that um, helps children to understand nature wildlife and our input to that is the ocean and we have some gorgeous creatures um, talking about what what we can do telling kids about the wonders of the ocean because that's the other thing we protect what we love yeah so when they learn how fascinating it is and they learn the absolute essentials like the fact that the oceans you know every second breath is thanks to the ocean so it needs to be healthy so there's a lot of fun with that one um, and then we have the more formal education so the 11 to 16 so this fits in with the um uh, international igc um, syllabus so it was designed by teachers for teachers and it looks at all the subjects that they have to learn all the key learning outcomes that they have to do all the different levels um, but weaves our information into those subjects so we've covered um, maths geography english chemistry biology all these different things um, people can then look at but we're also looking at the next generation of these and we're currently um, looking to get our that um, funded and that's going to put all of our resources online and um, bring in new digital resources because we don't have enough people to keep going out to school so mm. whenever i'm i'm traveling i'm often invited to schools to give talks and things and in fact i'm doing another one this week um, but it's much easier if teachers know where to go and can get everything a lot of ours are already downloadable we just want to make them more um, interactive and uh, bring more information about the ocean because the original ones were based on what plastics doing in the ocean and then the final bit is our wave makers and this is for mainly 16 to uh, 25 year olds and these are the people who are leaving school who are at university who are in their first jobs and they want to either have a, a career in sustainability or they're looking to bring an element of sustainability into their chosen career so it looks at what their special power is so what are their values um what have they done what are their talents what's their experience seeing how we can match those to show them how unique they are and how they can use all of this to actually influence um other people and we also help them with um with the career choices and we're in touch with um organizations that can help take that forward and some of them also end up doing some work for us too so um it's it's it just it, it's putting a different sort of lens on uh young people and and where they're going in life and the importance of sustainability and you know whatever they choose they can do something that helps the planet so that's yeah. our three focus areas it's such a worthwhile goal honestly and it's clearly making a difference so what is your hope for the future of the ocean? It, this is one that I often get asked and I always say the same thing. So at the risk of being boring, um, my hope for the ocean is that the ocean's, ocean in my granddaughter's future is as beautiful and healthy as the ocean was in my past. Hmm. I love that. I've seen lots of changes and I know how they all love it. You know, they're all surfing and snorkeling and you know we, we, we live in a place where you know you see dolphins quite often and you know it's this beautiful coastline and it's it's very much in our lives but i do see the problems and i do see the changes since i was little yeah. but we can reverse that you know I, I i wouldn't be doing what i do if i didn't think we can change that and so that's my hope for their future 
Yeah, I think that's so fantastic. And Joe, thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to come on and talk about all of this um, and share your knowledge. So if anyone is interested in learning more, all of the links are going to be in the description to Ocean Generation, also to the film Plastic Ocean, and uh, you can get more information there. But Joe, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Hazel, thank you so much for asking me. Love talking to you. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and I will see you all next week.